You are now listening to episode 78 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. My name is Brian Davis, and this is my show. And on this episode, I'm talking with Amy Berger about her new book, The Alzheimer's Antidote. Using a low-carb, high-fat diet to fight Alzheimer's disease, memory loss, and cognitive decline. It is a comprehensive metabolic and lifestyle approach. Fantastic stuff. I think we're going to call this one round to it. Enjoy the show. Oh, and as always, I thank you for listening. Hello. Can you hear me at all? I can. Oh, okay. Wait, I'm on my headset now. Okay. So I don't know why the microphone is not working. It worked fine mm-hmm. a couple minutes ago when I recorded to test. Okay. But for some reason, you cannot hear it. So um, I... I let's just stick with what we've got. Okay. But so you, you don't need me to record my end then? or Let's just skip that and... Um... Hopefully we get good results with the Skype recorder. Okay. Sorry for all this. I, I am such a, uh, I'm a good writer and I am helpless when it comes to technology. <laughs> like the, I always tell people the fact that I have a blog is a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. It's all right. It's, yeah. it's actually really sad. I don't know if you've ever heard of Carnegie Mellon University. Um, it's one of the best computer engineering schools in the world. And that's where I went to school, but I studied creative writing. <laughs> <laughs> so fat lot of good it did me with computers. I'm like an embarrassment to that school. Yeah, maybe, maybe they don't. Well, yeah, I was going to say they don't want anyone to know that you went there. Yeah, but well, now that I have a book out, they should be proud of me that I was a writing major there. But for computers, forget it. It only took us 40 minutes. That's not so bad. Yeah. And I, I have used this microphone for two podcasts last week. So I know it works. I, so I don't know. The gods are not with us today, but I know it does work. These things happen. It's all right. Yeah. I actually had, it was great that we had a little break there because I've been on a mosquito killing mission. So. Oh, no. Yeah. Where do you live? In Ohio. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, we have mosquitoes. So In your house or are you outside? I'm in a, uh, mm, I'm in a room that's attached to our house. Oh, it's, okay. It's like an old uh, workshop that uh, uh-huh. we kind of inherited. And, uh, yeah. I, well, that's cool, though. It's, it's like your little podcasting room. It's, it, your, it's your studio. It is. It is for now, yeah. It, it works out pretty good. It gets away from the barking dog and the um, screaming kids. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I are we recording now? I don't know when you want to start, but... Yeah, so the I'm Skype s- recorder records. And um, okay. I, I do like to always tell people that uh, this show is not live. And um, if, you know, you say something that you regret later, we can edit it out. Um, and that the show is tagged explicit... So oh, okay. if you Excellent. accidentally swear, um, you know, no problem. That's, 
I might, I might, I might deliberately swear because oh, it's see? not often that I get to swear on a podcast. And now you're now you have freedom. <laughs> I want. I'm so curious. We could ask about this like on the actual show if you want. But your kids have a coffee business. Is that right? Yes, they do. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, we huh. have. Um, they sell door to door coffee, whole bean coffee, and then yeah. um, we sell online. Our online sales create just enough revenue to pay for the coffee. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, I let them keep every penny that they sell door to door. Oh, that's nice. So it works out pretty good for them. They're not very money motivated, though. They usually go out, they have a pocket full of money, and they're like, what do we do with it? Oh. Like, uh, just save it? Yeah, <laughs> that's know. neat, though, that they're, that they're learning at least how to make a dollar, you know? Yeah, but my second grade son has discovered Pokemon, so that mm -hmm. is now where all his money goes. I see. But, <laughs> well, but the, the, better better than your money. <laughs> right. And the, uh, my daughter still, she just puts it away in her sock drawer I, or somewhere. I don't know where her money goes. Oh, that's funny. Cool. I'll probably find out someday and be horrified, but who knows? Right. <laughs> <laughs> what are all these Barbie dolls doing here? <laughs> that's right. Let's talk about nutrition and especially Alzheimer's. Okay. I think that's the whole point here. Um, you wrote a book called The Alzheimer's Antidote, and I wanted to find out more. And I want to keep it um, generally simple for mm -hmm. just the casual audience, uh, people who might be exploring aging, have someone aging in their lives, or... Maybe this is something they're afraid of or they have in their family. Mm -hmm. And then I do have a question to start is, uh, did you have, uh, do you have a history of Alzheimer's in your family? Is that what led you to this or other? I, I actually don't have a family history of this. I do have a family history of type two diabetes, obesity, and stroke. And um, they now call Alzheimer's disease type three diabetes. So there's kind of an overlapping interest there, but the reason I got interested in this is um, a long time ago, I read Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Taubes, and he has a chapter in there. Uh, it's something called something like dementia, cancer, and aging. And it was the first place I ever heard of a connection between glucose, insulin, and Alzheimer's. And it was pretty fascinating. I mean, I had never heard of that before, but I, it didn't really strike my attention at the time because, you know, like I said, no family history. And I was, I was more into low carb for weight loss and for other purposes. But I said, you know, that's really cool. Like maybe I'll look into that at some other time. And then a couple of years later, when I was doing my master's in nutrition, I had to do a thesis. And um, instead of doing an original research experiment, I did what we call a literature review. So that means like I choose a topic and I read a ton of scientific literature about it. And I basically do a giant review of it all. And when I had to pick a topic, I said to myself, what is something I could learn about? What is something that hasn't been written about a million times already? And something that would actually have enough information about it that I could write this gigantic review. So I said, I'm going to go back to that. And I just couldn't believe what I found on PubMed and in, in scientific and medical journals. I mean, everywhere you look, they're talking about problems with insulin and glucose in the brain, specifically what they call brain hypometabolism. And that's just a big fancy word for meaning that the brain is not getting enough energy. 
uh, specifically from glucose. It's it's losing the ability to fuel itself by glucose. So the neurons sort of atrophy and wither and die. And the end result of that is dementia. It's problems with memory, problems with cognition, with behavior, personality changes. Um, and it was so, so amazing to me that here this was all over the place, but nobody was talking about it. You know, why hadn't I ever heard of type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain? Um, even for people that aren't that into health or that into nutrition, they've heard about low carb. They've heard about the Atkins diet or paleo or some other approach because it's just so it's so much in the mainstream even now. Like there's magazine articles about it and, and regular newspaper articles. Why wasn't anybody talking about this Alzheimer's thing? So um, I couldn't I couldn't keep it to myself, and I ended up writing a little ebook about it to try to get the word out, mm -hmm. and and it has since morphed into this real book. Oh, that's amazing! So you had you launched it yourself digitally. First, yeah, yeah, it was it was actually a PDF. I didn't even do like create space. It wasn't even that fancy. It was a PDF that I sold on my website and a friend's website. And um, I I hit the jackpot. I mean, a, a pretty well known publisher found it and offered me a book deal. I mean, this it, it landed in my lap. I didn't even have to do a book proposal. I mean, it's never going to be this easy for me ever again. <laughs> well, you never. Know I wish it after would after the be, first but... one. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, hopefully this one will do really well, and you know, then uh, then somebody will want another one from me. Did your nutrition training um, align with your current like low carb, high fat uh, diet? Good question. Or did you have um, yes to go on yes. your own? Yeah, yes and no, a little bit of both. Um, I went to the University of Bridgeport up in Connecticut, and I chose that school specifically because I knew they wouldn't feed me the sort of conventional food pyramid, high grain, high, you know, low, low fat vegetable oil type of paradigm. Um, there's five accredited naturopathic medical colleges in the U.S. and Bridgeport has one of them. So I knew right off the bat that they would at least be a little bit unconventional, you know, a little bit more into like a holistic type of philosophy, whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. Sure. Um, and I, I also ended up at Bridgeport because I was, I'm a, I'm a veteran and they had, um, more benefits for me than, than a couple of other schools. So I, I, in terms of my using my GI bill to pay for my education, it was better to go to this school than some others. So, um, but, you know, ultimately I chose them because I knew that they, that they would be at least open to a different paradigm. And certainly, like, none of my professors was talking about low-carb. One of them even actively bad-mouthed the Atkins diet until I sat him down and had a very nice discussion with him. Um, kudos to him for being open-minded about it. But um, none of them, all of them were very into whole food, unrefined food. None of them were specifically emphasizing low carb or even, you know, I don't think the word ketogenic ever came up, but at least they, they knew for sure that not everybody was suited to a diet very high in grain and very high in carbohydrate. And, and the biochem professors more than anyone, cause they know the biochemistry were raising questions about all these like highly polyunsaturated vegetable oils. So, um, it was a good balance that I didn't, I got a good perspective, you mm -hmm. know, they, mm -hmm. they were not, they weren't feeding my biases, but I, I, the best thing out of that program was a good steeping in very basic anatomy and physiology and biochemistry, because by learning those basics, I'm better able to interpret for myself 
scientific literature. Like it gave me the, the background to be able to read a paper and actually understand what it means. Yeah, that that's excellent. I, I talked to many people um, that have gone through uh, medical school, medical training, or nutrition school, and some get, um, well, let's just say varying flavors of information. So yeah. it's an interesting well, story. I, yeah, varying flavors is a good, a good way to describe it. Um, I was lucky in the sense that I went to Bridgeport after I had already been eating low carb for probably mm, five years maybe more. So I already knew a lot about it. I was kind of, I wanted to get the degree because I felt like it would give me a little more credibility and legitimacy in terms of working with the public instead of just, you know, being someone that's, that's giving advice, but I don't really have any formal education. And of course you and I both know tons of people on social media who are very, very knowledgeable and don't have any formal training. So the mm -hmm. letters really don't mean much, just they give me more confidence. Um, you know, there's plenty of people out there that don't have any official credentials who are really brilliant. Um, but so I, I lucked out that I went to school after I already knew a couple of things. So I, even at that point, I could kind of separate some of the wheat from the chaff, you know, and yeah, I, yeah. I wasn't going to go up against a professor, like I wasn't going to confront anyone in front of the other students. But um, I did have some sort of offline discussions with some of them. And, and like I said, really kudos to them for for being open-minded so yeah i guess the credentials the letters after your name um may be required depending on where you live um, if you want to be a, you know a clinician so although there are many people who learn a lot on their own they are often prohibited from using that their own knowledge uh, to to help someone for you know, for monetary gain, you, you can't right. be a nutritionist without a, a degree, basically. Yeah. Do or even, even not for monetary gain. I don't, do, right. do you know the story of Steve Cooksey? Uh, he's the diabetes warrior. Diabetes warrior. Yeah. yeah. So even when you're not doing it for profit, like people just get so, uh, so many turf wars and they get very territorial when, you know, how dare a layperson presume to know anything about the human body? Yeah. I forgot about his story. That was actually like a, that actually went somewhere. Like he got, he had to go to court or, or there was some story there. I, I, I forget the story though. Yeah, it got pretty big. I think, I think he ultimately won because he wasn't really doing anything wrong, but I, I don't remember really. Yeah, yeah. Well, people can look him up and read all about it. Yeah. So do you work as a clinician with, um, pe people come to you with these problems in an yeah, office I mean, setting I or how? I, I wish it was an office setting. Um, if anyone out there has an office setting that they would like to bring on an in-house nutritionist, I am available for hire, depending on where you're located. But um, I I kind of work from home. Uh, if a lot of people find me online, so if if they find me locally, I can meet with them locally. But if um, most of my clients are long distance, they find me from all over the world. I mean, I, I've even done consultations with people overseas. So um, I I do most of it over the phone or Skype. And I, I, I prefer to meet with people in person, but I guess um, just the clientele, it's hard to get enough people locally. Yeah, well, when you open up the world as your clientele versus the, you know, <laughs> several hundreds or whatever that are around you, I'm, I could see a larger potential to help, you know, more people. And then I could also see the advantage of having people, you know, in your presence one-on-one -on -one where you can really, you know, do a proper intake and diagnosis. Yeah, I have to say, I think something something missing from the not not only from the online exchange, but even in kind of a regular doctor's office these days, is the old fashioned 
physical exam, not just looking at all the numbers and all the lab work, but this, and this is something that's really emphasizing kind of the, the more Eastern medicine, looking at somebody, what does their skin look like? What's, how, how's their, their eyes, you know, even their tongue? Um, how are their nails growing? How's their hair? Do they look healthy? Do they look well? Um, and, and there's certain, certain things you can look for when you're trained to do it that, that won't be listed on, on a lab printout. You know, there's no test for it, but you can see if somebody's skin looks sallow, you can see if their nails aren't growing. Um, and then of course, you know, a lot of people come to me for weight loss and even if they tell me their height and weight or their age, it's, it's still better for me to be able to look at them, you know, and really see sure. where, where are they carrying their weight? Because that can be a sign too of different, different hormonal problems. So, um, yeah, I, I prefer to meet with people, but it's uh, not always possible. Yeah. And I think now it is, it is even accepted that this visual inspection of human bodies is, is, is rather normal. Um, for instance, uh, darkening skin around the neck and excessive skin tags. I think that's pretty well known even in just your regular old you know general practitioner that you are either pre-diabetic or diabetic if you have right. that going on and now you're seeing this in pre-teens even oh god it's so it's oh it's terrible it's crazy i would do have an antidote i had skin tags i used to be obese i guess technically oh really yeah. I did not know that. I've yeah. only I've only known you since you were thinner. Yeah, I've uh, um, I don't know the number. Let's call it a sixty pound weight loss, just for wow. a nice round number, maybe more. Um, and um, all the skin tags went away. I didn't yeah. know that was possible, but they're gone, and I didn't do anything to them. My claim is that it was the uh, low carb, high fat diet. <laughs> I, I would agree with that claim. I mean, we know those are signs of, of high insulin. So um, did they, I have a weird question. Sure. Did they just like shrink and dissipate or did they fall off? I mean, how does that work? I, I, I think they, they just I never shrink, noticed but... one uh, falling off or yeah. having to pull one off. I just noticed right. over time that they're, they are all gone and I have no yeah. more uh, discoloration around my neck. Oh, you had that too. You did. They call yeah, just... that acanthosis nigricans. Okay. It has a, yeah, it has a big fancy name, but um. So it doesn't that's... everything, yeah. <laughs> that's cool though. That I my guess is that they probably just got reabsorbed into your into your body. You know, your body just kind of recaptured it. Yeah. So those could be some uh, unwanted proteins there, and the body might see them as a oh, we can recycle this. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Same thing with like you know certain doctors. Uh, Doctor Fung being among them says that some, at least some of his patients that have lost a significant amount of weight don't need to have skin removal surgery because the body just kind of reabsorbs those proteins. But I, you know, obviously that doesn't happen in everybody. Yeah. Depending on the uh, method you use to lose the weight. If yeah. you were, this is me just, just pulling stuff out of the, out of my imagination. But let's say if you did a uh, high fat diet and you often entered ketosis, um, then your body could potentially use all that excess skin as fuel. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of his explanation for it too. And also, obviously, he's kind of the big fasting guy. And he thinks that a lot of the fasting too, the body will turn to those proteins instead of like kind of breaking down other proteins in your body. Right. And what's so what's the term for this? Um, 
in that fasted state where you're recycling the proteins? Um, uh, oh, I guess it's it's autophagy. Autophagy, but I yeah. But that's what I was trying to think of. Yeah, right? I I guess I guess that's a kind of autophagy if it's like kind of breaking down and re reusing those skin that that bits of skin. I I wouldn't have thought of that, but you're you're probably right. Could be. I don't know. But perhaps I have incurred brain damage. Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> so can we let's just talk about, you know, what is this? What is Alzheimer's itself? And is this related to other disorders such as Parkinson's or the common or what I've heard dementia? Um, good question. Um I don't know if all the various forms of dementia are defined. I think Alzheimer's is a form of dementia. There's also vascular dementia. Um, there is, you know, dementias that result from from a stroke or a traumatic brain injury. Um, the things that cause these different types of dementias are different, but I think that one particular intervention can be effective for all of them, at least to some degree. It's probably more effective for Alzheimer's than any other, but... Um, uh, the extent to which Alzheimer's might be related to Parkinson's or ALS or multiple sclerosis or any other neurological disorder, um, that would come from, at least as far as I know and as far as I think, from a mitochondrial problem. Um, all of those disorders have some type of mitochondrial dysfunction involved. And, and I don't just mean like generalized mitochondrial dysfunction. I mean, that's becoming a real buzzword these days in the health world. But uh, like, for example, I think it's with, um, is it ALS, either ALS or Parkinson's, one of them, there's a specific defect in part of the electron transport chain, which is like getting way deep in the weeds for your audience. But um, part of the like machinery inside the mitochondria, which are what generate energy for the whole body, um, if, if those little pieces are not working right, the whole system is going to fall apart. And, and so I think that unifies all of these disorders, but it's not the same problem in all the disorders. So there's some degree of underlying uh, mitochondrial dysfunction in all of these conditions, but it's not the same exact dysfunction. Yeah, I, see. I see. So, but, but overall, we're talking about a metabolic disorder. I think it's Unless, Alzheimer's... except in the cases of injury or something like that. Yeah, in Alzheimer's, I think we're talking about a metabolic issue. In in like in ALS, for example, you, there's a there's an antioxidant enzyme called superoxide dismutase, and in ALS, or that's also called Lou Gehrig's disease. If anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, it's the same thing as Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, there's that enzyme malfunctions. And that enzyme is really important for the mitochondria to work properly. Um, it's not the same problem going on in Parkinson's. It's not the same in 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 um, multiple sclerosis. I don't know that those are caused by metabolic abnormalities. I think Alzheimer's is. Um, but it's very interesting that they've done the same type of dietary intervention for some of these conditions. And it works for all of them. Maybe not, it's not a slam dunk. It's not like a miracle cure, but there's significant improvement in symptoms in all of these conditions. And what is the dietary change? What are, what are, what are they doing to get, to get these results, to get positive it's called, results? Right. Um, so it's called the ketogenic diet, which, you know, I know you know about, I, I don't know about your audience. So the ketogenic diet is very high in fat, 
very low in carbohydrate and it's a moderate in protein. They don't go over in protein. Um, and the reason for that, I know it sounds crazy, right? It's like the complete opposite of what we've been told to do for so long. The, the rationale behind that is that that dramatic change actually induces a, a broad spectrum sort of fundamental switch in the whole body, the, the way the entire body generates energy. You go from getting most of your body's energy needs from glucose or from carbohydrate uh, to getting it from fat and these things called ketones that are byproducts of a fat-based metabolism. And it's, it's not a lack of a ketogenic diet that's causing these conditions, but there's so many great beneficial biochemical things that happen from this one dietary change that um, it does seem to, to benefit many of these conditions. Yeah, I remember um, myself when I um, first started discovering um, the importance of food in my life, mm -hmm. when I had my, I had serious health problems on top of my weight. The weight wasn't really even my issue. I, I didn't care. I just had health problems. So I just started reading everything. And I, um, I'm trying to think of an author's name right now. And um, he scared me away from low carb because he, he made a... Uh, a big statement in the book that, you know, this was during the previous uh, low carb craze back during the when the South Beach diet came out. If you mm -hmm. remember that one, <laughs> yeah, uh, and then that, that, that I, one's still pretty popular. Okay, well, the author, oh, Michael Pollan, in Michael Pollan's book, um, he says it, something to the effect of, and so you can see why the low carb diet didn't work because the brain requires glucose for energy. Oh boy! And he says that specifically in that book. And so I steered away from that for a long time until I did more research than from a journalist. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, if, if we can just for, for a second divert onto Michael Pollan, um, he, he's done a lot of good work, right? He's done an incredible amount to popularize cooking at home, farmer's markets, cooking what you and I would call real food, whole one ingredient unprocessed food. Like he's great there. Um, Omnivore's Dilemma, he's got some really great books. Unfortunately, he maybe doesn't have the right background to understand some of the biochemistry and physiology. And I'm, I'm like a beginner. I'm not saying I know it all. But some of the claims that he makes, you know, he's still scaring people away from saturated fat. He's still kind of scaring people away from red meat. And so I think he's kind of myopic in where he's getting his information from. So, um, yeah, it's not surprising that he would he would through his writing, scare you away from a high-fat diet. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I still do recommend all his books, um, anything you can find online, videos. Um, he has several TV series that he's made. He's really great, but like you said, there yeah, are some I don't, I don't faults. Wanna, yeah, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, he does really good work, but he, he should maybe be a little more careful when he starts to get into the territory of you know recommendations in terms of health and, and medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the keto diet, um, I brought you on, I guess, you know, to cover that just a little bit, because in a, a couple of previous episodes, I've had some uh, anti-keto warriors out there. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great, though. It's good. It's good to have a good balance of perspectives. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you do a keto diet or do you do it intermittently? Explain. I do it intermittently. I am low-carb but not always ketogenic. So that means um, 
at the current moment, and, and usually I don't weigh and measure my food, I don't track my carbohydrate or my protein intake, um, I, I probably consume too much protein to be overtly ketogenic. And um, I'm, I, generally speaking, for most people, you have to be under 30 grams of carbohydrate. Some people can get away with 40, maybe even 50 is pushing it to, to remain in ketosis. I'm not always there. Some days I am. So I kind of bounce in and out of ketosis by default, just by what I eat on any particular day. But um, I don't I don't freak out if I have a slice of bread now and then, or, you know, mm -hmm. heaven forbid, some ice cream every mm -hmm. now and then. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I but I am low carb and I've been low carb long enough that when I have something very high in carbohydrate, it doesn't affect me in terms of like, okay, I'm not in ketosis, but it doesn't undo all of the long-term metabolic adaptations that have happened. Like I don't, I don't, you know, get cravings for more. It doesn't, um, it doesn't set me up on the blood sugar roller coaster for three days. It's like I have it and it's over and I move on. So, um, I yeah, feel I like, like my, this. I like this. It's, yeah. it's that you're not in a clinical setting, right? So let's ditch the scales of weighing our food and everything about it and, and learn how to eat appropriately, right? Um, yeah, I that's I, there is... pull the training wheels off, go ahead, live a great life, eat, you know, <laughs> real food um, without becoming manic. Yes, which um, is there, impossible there, there for might some be, people. There might be a time and a place for weighing and measuring the food, but even if you have to do that at some point to see where you are or to, to make sure you're doing something that you need to be doing, um, nobody should have to do that forever. You know, after a while, you're able to ballpark the portions. You know what a tablespoon of something looks like. You know how much five ounces is. Um, you know, and maybe every once in a while you have to go back to it. Maybe you've been straying a little too much. But, yeah, you, you kind of hit it right on the head. I mean, people really become neurotic about this. And the whole point of this is to make your life better, to make you feel better. And if you end up feeling worse and feeling really stressed out and scared of food, that's just not the point at all. Do you often get approached by people um, with like a neurosis about food? Um, quite, quite often, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think I blog about this a lot too. For some reason, those people seem to find me. I don't know why. And I, I try to talk sense into them. You know, it's... it's. I know a lot of people blame diets for making people neurotic, but I, I my idea would be that... It, it's not that. It, it may be reversed, that a neurosis finds people to find peculiar diets. I think you're right. I, I get that a lot. Um, people with, you know, whether it's an overt eating disorder or people that have that kind of personality to begin with, they tend to seek out these diets that have these quote-unquote food rules. It gives it gives them it gives them a free license to be neurotic, right? Well, I can't eat that. I'm paleo. Or like, I can't have that. I'm low carb. And it just... It's just another way for them to control everything. Uh, yes, uh, this is a philosophical thing as well. The um, constraint and restriction for some people is their freedom. They they can't really cope in um, free ad lib living. They need more stricture, structure, rules. So yeah, there's something to that. Interesting. Yeah. 
I don't I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing. I mean, if if somebody's really ill or even really obese and they find a plan that works for them because it's it's very black and white, there's these foods they're allowed to have and there's that list of foods that they're not allowed to have. Mm-hmm. If that gives them their health back or really literally gives them their life back, then that's great, but it's interesting that I find that the people who are the most neurotic about it are actually the ones who need <clears throat> who need to be the least. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's the ones yeah. that are already extremely fit, extremely healthy. Uh, oftentimes, they're even underweight, <clears throat> especially if they're women. They tend to come to me. So, um, it's. I wish there were more people in the middle. It's like there's either people that are very sick and very ill that don't care, or there's people that are extremely well and extremely healthy that want to get even more so. And there's like very few of us kind of in the middle who are just motoring along and we just want to, you know, feel well, but we're not crazy. <laughs> I don't know. I, that's that's yeah. kind of rude to say, but no, I, just... I but I understand your intent of the of the comment. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I I totally get it. Uh, you are not a psychotherapist, so I can imagine it it can be difficult to to deal with clients of with so many disorders, as you might say. You know. It is hard. And I, I usually try to, you know, I try to be very polite about it. And I explain that I can help them with the food, but that's all I can help them with. I'm not trained to deal with the other piece. And I can at least bring it to their attention. I can say, I think you really need some other kind of help. I think you need someone else to come in here, but I, I'm not the one who can do it. It is a powerful thing to be able to say no. Steve Jobs claimed it was his key to success, that he was willing to say no to almost everything <laughs> that came his way. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess he must have said yes to a couple of the right things. That's right. Um, and then for a key to health, I find uh, one of the most powerful things is via negativa. It's not so much what you add, but perhaps what you remove. Because we live in a society where everything is available, Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Di- dietarily, it's obviously with the ketogenic diet. I think I think it's it's not even so much that you add fat; it's that you take away so much starch and so much sugar. Um, because you know, vegan vegan proponents could say the same thing. Well, their diet works because you remove all the animal products. Um, I don't I don't necessarily think that's true, but you know, it, it would be hard to prove otherwise. You know. Yeah, if someone is eating a, let's say, a raw vegan diet, they can't eat raw wheat. That's not possible. It has to be processed. So they wouldn't be eating that, these processed, highly processed modern foods. So maybe that is like a link. That's the bridge between, say, a paleo diet and a, a vegan diet. Maybe they differ on the protein intake. But one thing that is not the protein source would be, you know unrefined grains processed, right. which are basically t- t- sugar. Right. Yeah. I mean, if they're, if they're not eating, especially like you said, if it's raw vegan, they're not eating any breakfast cereal. They're not eating any pasta. They're not even eating beans. They're not even right. Not rice because you, you can't eat any of that raw. So they're probably, even though the percentage of their diet is almost, well, it's not they might be eating a lot of fat from olive oil, avocados, but they're eating a lot of fruit and vegetables. The insulin load of that diet is actually still very low. Right. So it is keto can be done uh, without meat, correct? 
Yes, um, it's difficult, but you can do it. I think it's much harder to do it as a vegan and be fully covering your nutritional bases. You can do it, but you, you're going to be nutrient deficient at some point. If if you're a lacto-ovo vegetarian, totally simple to do, yeah. Well, let's I don't, talk I don't about, think it's ideal. I don't think it's the best way to do it, but you say, can do it. I was going to say, let's talk about how to eat as a sane person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know if there's an answer to that, but we can try. We can speculate. <laughs> Is there a eat this, don't eat that kind of uh, at least a starting point for folks? Um I I actually gave a talk the other day to a group who, you know, knew nothing about nutrition and somebody asked me what what is a whole food? What is unprocessed food? And I had to stop for a second. I said, that's a really good question because every everybody says don't eat processed foods, right? Even like the USDA, even the government says that vegans, vegetarian, paleo, low carb, that's actually one thing we all agree on, less or no processed food. Um, so when I say like, make your diet mostly whole, unrefined, unprocessed foods, I mean foods that are one ingredient, like chicken, beef, broccoli, eggplant, asparagus, almonds, things that it's just one, it's one food. And, and we could also say maybe foods that appear in your pl on your plate or in your kitchen, at least with as little human intervention as possible. So, you know, not, um, I don't even, I can't even think of a good example, but well, here's, meat as, as, yeah, I was going to say, for as, instance, dried meat, say beef jerky is a processed food. That's not really what we're talking about. If right. if you did it at home, you had control of the ingredients. But if you were talking about beef jerky that you bought at a gas station, that could be problematic because of all the things that were added to it. Um, I process foods a lot because I ferment foods. And that's a process. <laughs> the fermentation yeah, process, right? That's actually a really good point. Because even cooking is processing, Ted, sure. right? We're chopping, right. we're slicing, we're peeling, we're heating it. Um, so yeah, I guess even that definition of processing that I, you know, the whole food thing is kind of problematic. I guess it's, this is going to be such a terrible answer, but you remember like a long time ago, there was that congressman or something was talking about pornography and there's no definition, but he's like, I know it when I see but it. But he knows it when he sees it. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like I know what it, you know, you kind of, you kind of sort of know what it is by instinct. That's what processed I, food is. I should I mean, hope so. I should hope that anyone gets the point of what we're saying and we don't yeah. need to have some language argument about, you know, we don't need to overly overdefine this. Yeah. I mean, if, if the ingredient list has, you know, 10 or 20 ingredients, most of which you can't even pronounce, that probably is better off left on the store shelf. Right. If it's made in a factory, it could be bad. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of Jason Seib, but he's kind of a nutritionist, personal trainer guy who, for whatever reason, he seems to work much more with women, but, um, he he had a line that is so great and he's he said a lot it's ridiculous that i have a job i have the dumbest job in the world people pay me to tell them what to eat like this job should not exist <laughs> it's like it's a right. joke that i have this job like how yeah. how is this even possible a hundred years ago people didn't need professional help to eat 
But we've we've just gotten so far off the map that we've gotten to a point where people do people people are they're like deer in headlights at the grocery store. I see it all the time for the yogurt aisle. Forget it. <laughs> you know, I this one's I do and whole milk and like it's it's well. What I'm impressed is that people do pay him. I think that that is awesome because no one in my life would pay me for my opinion about what to eat. <laughs> they they <laughs> they don't want to hear it. You know. Which you would think they would. You've lost sixty pounds. You they should they should be beating down your door for advice. Uh, well, humanity. What can you say? Yeah, yeah. Is Alzheimer's uh, something? Um, let's say someone who's been on the Western diet food train for a good sixty years, and maybe people around them are noticing some decline, and they want to make an intervention. Um, is this a salvageable operation or are they on the slow, hopeless decline? Is there some hope there? Really good question. Um, I think there is hope. If I didn't think there's hope, I wouldn't have written my book. Um, I don't think anyone is so far gone that it's not worth some type of dietary and lifestyle change. Uh, obviously, the younger the person is, the more mild the cognitive problems are the more likely it is that they'll be able to reverse it. Um, if somebody is 80 or 90 and has had dementia for a very long time, I don't know that we're going to get a whole lot of progress there. I still mm -hmm. think it's worth trying for a number of reasons. I mean, even if, even if all we can do is improve symptoms in the short term and it doesn't actually slow the progression or it doesn't turn it around, that still improves not only that person's quality of life, but even more so the quality of life of their caregivers. The caregiver is the one who really suffers in this condition because the person who has it, you know, as it's happening, they're aware, but once they reach a certain point, they don't even know. They're not even aware that they've sort of lost their faculties. It's their loved ones that really are impacted. So if we can improve all of their quality of life, it's worth it. And I, I try to kind of explain it like a smoker. If you've smoked, for 20 or 30 years, you're, you might be in pretty bad shape. Your lungs have been through the ringer. Um, but does that mean that you might as well just keep on smoking? There's no point to quitting? Perfect. Of course point. not. Yeah, yeah. nobody yes. would ever say that to a smoker. You'd be like, the, the second you put out that last cigarette and throw the pack away and never buy another one, you're already getting better. Yes, so. as when you're not adding insult to the the human condition right exactly yeah, yeah. i just and we but we tend it's human nature i think we tend to have a defeatist attitude like oh i'm so sick i've been eating this way for 50 years 60 years all right so what change it tomorrow that's excellent um as i, I had a thought uh, let me see if i can look this guy up here um years ago i i used to be a bit of a sports fan and i used to watch um golf with my grandfather um it, are you familiar with jim nance no okay he's a sports broadcaster and he's at like the top of the game he he does the masters he does he does the big sporting events okay and he wrote a book gosh i must have read this nearly a decade ago let's see here um always by my side uh, the Healing Gift of a Father's Love. And that book is about, um, it, it's it's a love letter to his father, who, um, as Jim Nance, how did he say it? 
he, he went down the long dirt road of Alzheimer's and he lived with it for many years. And, uh, Jim, uh, tells the story of living with his father who suffered this horrific disease. So, um, it might be something you might want to check out or maybe reach out to Jim because he, this is his mission now, um, mm-hmm. is educating people about Alzheimer's. Um, and the book is a very touching story. And often times in nutrition, the one thing that's missing is that the story, you know, the, the love, the passion, you know, and the, and the, the sadness of something like Alzheimer's, because it is about the living, the, the caregivers, like you said, right? Yeah, I um I should check that out. It's I'm so hesitant to approach people that don't know about the book or don't know about this sort of theory. I guess, I guess we could call it a theory um about of of Alzheimer's being a metabolic problem very linked to insulin problems um because it's kind of like how the American Diabetes Association does not trumpet low carb and ketogenic diets when it's really the single most effective intervention for type two diabetes. And it's very effective for type one too, but mostly we're talking about type two. Um, they should be banging this drum the loudest. They should be shouting low carb from the rooftops. You want to manage your blood sugar. Step one, stop consuming sugar, stop consuming things that turn into sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my, I feel the same way about the Alzheimer's association. They should be screaming this at the top of their lungs, get these people on a ketogenic diet because the whole point is that even though the brain's ability to use glucose is impaired in this disease, its ability to use ketones is not impaired. And again, to to what extent that can actually reverse this or slow the progression, they're still doing studies. I mean, this stuff is really in its infancy. But I mean, to me, that's so obvious. That's that step one. This should be the first line therapy. Um, you know, worry about the details sometime down the line. But when um, when you know for sure that the brain is not getting energy from glucose, let's give it a different energy source, one it can use. Done. End of story. Now move on to some other intervention that might also help. But that should be the standard of care first and foremost. Hmm. Interesting. As like as now it is known, if someone suffers epilepsy, a ketogenic diet is pretty much standard of care, I believe, or it should be. Um, and maybe it's, in the it's future, standard of care for it's standard of care for people that uh, are unresponsive to drugs. Typically, the doctors <laughs> are not like, "Oh, do a ketogenic diet." They're like, it is Try so these funny drugs. that unresponsive to drugs is the. <sighs> then we have to find a new normal, whereas drugs yeah, and, would be and, the normal care. Right. The, cra- the crazy thing about the ketogenic diet, specifically for epilepsy, is that there's a lot of kids, when it's caught early, and they put these kids on a ketogenic diet, like when they're, I don't even know the age, but like adolescents. These people can do the diet for one or two years, be seizure-free, go off the diet, and remain seizure-free for life. There's something, at least this is specific to epilepsy, I'm not talking about Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or any other issue, but with epilepsy, there's something so um, powerful, and, and it, it must fix or reprogram something at such a fundamental level that when these kids follow it long-term and then quit, they still remain seizure-free. It's amazing. And, and that doesn't happen for everybody. I never but it's knew been that. Reported, yeah. yeah, it's been reported enough that it's really fascinating. Wow, that is crazy. Yeah. I, did, yeah. I, I Seriously, I thought keto, it was like keto for life if you're epileptic. 
I th- I, it doesn't work for everybody. I mean, some of the, some of them do have to stay on the diet, but there's um, multiple reports of people abandoning the diet and they're still seizure free. How do you... I don't think that happens. Mm-hmm. I was gonna, just going to say, Go I ahead. don't think that happens in adults because there are um, most of the research on epilepsy with ketogenic diets have been done in kids, but there are plenty of adults also using it successfully. I don't know of any stories of adults doing the diet for a while and then being able to get off it. <clears throat> All those reports are in kids. Gotcha. Well, here's the tough one. How do you get dietary compliance if someone at least pretends they want to make a change or, or, or they've come to you, they, they've asked for some advice. How do you get any compliance? Good question. How do I get myself to comply? That's the, that's the real question. How do I, how do I get off those Girl Scout cookies, Brian? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, yeah. right. <laughs> well, I guess that's, that's step one is for me to say up front, I'm not a saint. I, I eat some stuff now and then, but I've, I'm comfortable with the amount of wiggle room that I have. You know, what, what can I eat, how often, and still look and feel and have the blood work that I'm comfortable with? Um, in terms of compliance, it's interesting because most of the people who come to me are already following some variation of a paleo or low-carb or ketogenic diet. They're just not getting the results they want, maybe, or they want to troubleshoot some things. So compliance with them isn't really an issue. I for see. the people yeah. that are, yeah, for the people that are new. Yeah, the newcomers, yeah. Yeah. That, it's... um. It depends on how dedicated and how committed they are. Some of them are sick enough and fed up enough and frustrated enough that they'll do anything. You know, they'll stick to whatever you tell them. They just, some of them, they'll comply. They've just never had the right information before. The people that are brand new to low carb, you know, they'll, Mm -hmm. um, they're willing to do whatever they have to do. They just have been given incorrect information for so long in terms of like, oh, eat low fat, you know, cut calories. Um, I... It's, that's, I don't know. I don't know how you get compliance. Um, it's, it's not something that I can enforce from the outside. Right, right. It's, it's something people have to know for themselves. Discover for themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you're there to support and guide. Yeah. And it's, it's also why, and you know, I am fully willing to admit that maybe I'm going about it wrong, but this is why I, I try to steer people away from being complete zealots and, and totally neurotic because that way, if you have a piece of cheesecake, guess what? No big deal. You had a piece of cheesecake tomorrow, you wake up and you have eggs for breakfast. Um, <laughs> right. You know, and I don't, it's not that I encourage that and I don't encourage it often, but I try to get people to know from the outset that it's not that you're going to adopt this this plan that I'm giving you and you're never, ever going to go to Olive Garden and have breadsticks ever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's just not even realistic. Um, so they have the compliance. I think the best way to get people to comply is when they are very strict for a little bit and they see results. There's nothing more motivating than when something works. Ah, that's that, as Rob Wolf says, the greasy car salesman pitch. 30 yeah, days, get in there, give it a try. 30 days, <laughs> see how you feel, perform, you know, and go from there. Exactly. Like once once you see how good you can feel, especially when you come from a lifetime of not feeling good, why would you want to go back? Why would you not want to comply when you feel so great? Excellent. How about, what about activity? Or is this covered in your book? We're talking about physical activity, not just diet. 
Yes, uh, we're talking about a couple of different lifestyle things. Exercise is one of them, but I, I like how you said activity um, because it doesn't, you, you know. I hate the word unquote, exercise. I can't yeah. screw exercise. Exercise is bullshit. I, I hate the <laughs> word. It ex- Exercise does sound a lot more intimidating than activity because activity is you could go for a walk. Um, and it's not that walking takes no effort and that it's not exercise, but it's, it's, it's a lot more encouraging to get up and go for a walk than you think, oh my God, I have to run five miles or, oh, I have to go lift weights. And there's a place for all of that. I mean, any, in terms of cognitive function and, and possibly warding off this condition, any physical movement you can get is better than none. Um, I think it is important to build muscle if you can. Um, I don't like weightlifting, but I force myself to do it. Uh, not as often as I should, but it's really important to maintain muscle mass. Um, very, it's very important exercise of any kind for insulin sensitivity. Because if, if one of the main issues in Alzheimer's is this insulin problem, then you want to make sure that you don't become insulin resistant. And exercise is really good for maintaining insulin sensitivity excuse me, sensitivity. And um, there's something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And um, I'm going to quote a doctor who I just spoke to a couple days ago who had the greatest quote. He said, BDNF is like miracle grow for your neurons. Hmm. And so, you know, exercise, even though you hate the word, is known to be a very, very potent natural antidepressant. It's a mood lifter. You generally think sharper Uh, more sharply after you exercise. And that's because it's really good for the brain. Now, whether that's because of increased blood flow to the brain and increased nutrient delivery or this increase in BDNF, the bottom line is exercise is really good for cognitive function. Um, And, you know, somebody who is 85 and has dementia, it's not safe for them to exercise, even go for a walk. So I say in the book that exercise or physical activity is great if you can if if you can do it do it and do it to the you know not all the time we don't want people running like ironman triathlons every mm-hmm, day but mm-hmm. um make sure that it's a part of your life but if you are of an age or of a such a such an advanced disease state that it's not safe for you to exercise then don't feel like because you can't exercise, you should just throw this whole strategy out the window. It's not worth it. I mean, it's the diet is the most important thing. The exercise is just help. It'll help. Yeah. So that's part of the problem with my exercise because when someone thinks exercise, they think of some cardiovascular movement thing, you know, where you're getting that heart rate up and doing all these things where there's other exercises. For instance, if if someone wasn't able to run any longer they could still build strength if you lay in a bed you can press against something you know you could lift a five pound weight and if it fell on the floor big deal you know yeah i mean it's it's kind of funny i i actually do belong to a gym and they have kind of their senior aerobics and senior stretching and i used to think god that stuff is so depressing but it's actually really great because Maybe oh, yeah, if, if you can move, I, I strongly believe in movement, especially like yeah. movement meditation, Tai Chi, Qigong. Exactly. Any of these like things, to, right. Yeah, for these people to even be standing, and some of them are actually sitting, they're sitting in a chair, but they're doing dumbbell curls, they're lifting their legs, they're doing what they can, which yeah. is awesome. I love it. Hold your arms straight out or over right. your head. That requires strength. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I, I just don't like the word exercise, but that has no meaning 
don't, don't worry about that. I just, eh, it's kind of like. No, I'm kind, I'm yeah. kind of the same way because exercise seems like this big intimidating thing. Like I have to go to the gym and I have to, you know, even like you have to buy special clothes and special equipment. You really don't. Like you could, you could get a good workout in your house. You know, just if you have room to jump around and bend and stretch, you're good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is um, is there a population difference uh, of in Alzheimer's? Um, men or women more predominantly overweight, thin, anything like that? Um, really good question. Yeah, I don't think there's any difference in terms of body size. Um, there is a genetic risk factor for it and it's um the apoe4 genotype which it's just a risk factor it doesn't cause alzheimer's it just makes you more susceptible um people with with either one or two of these e4 genes are like you know i forget if it's fourfold they have like a multiple fold increase in risk for this condition um but i think you know the scientific literature seems to indicate that these are the people least suited for a high carbohydrate diet. So it's not that this genotype is a death sentence. Um, it's, it's that it, it's the one that is the most damaged by the modern diet and lifestyle. Um, it's, I don't, I don't think women get Alzheimer's more than men, but if you have a maternal history of it, if your if your mother, your grandmother, if the females in your family have had this condition, you are more likely to get it than if the males, because, um, if it is a mitochondrial problem, we inherit all of our mitochondria from the female line. For whatever reason, they are not contained in the sperm, they're contained in the eggs. So we get almost all, well, I say almost because I think there's like, they have maybe uncovered some rare exceptions. We basically get all our mitochondria from the mother. So to the extent that there might be something with the mitochondria, then it makes sense that this is uh, more ma maternally carried than paternally. Mm -hmm. So on the mother's side... It could be more yeah. of a concern, potentially right. genetically. Um, yeah. And since you said mentioned ApoE4, um, I did get one person who um, asked not a question, but just um, if you had any thoughts about um, ApoE4 and its effects uh, with the keto diet and lipid markers. Yeah, I I have a phone call with somebody this week who is like the founder of this really knowledgeable E4 forum that's online. And I've spoken to her before. Um, she eats a ketogenic, well, I don't know if she's ketogenic. She's very low carb, high fat. I don't know if she's aiming to be in ketosis or not, but she eats um, a lot of olive oil, nuts and seeds, avocado, fatty fish. She does eat some grass fed meats. The point is um, these E4s seem to be among some of what we would call hyper responders on a low carb diet, meaning that their body responds like super normally to dietary fat and um, possibly dietary cholesterol. I'm not sure about that, but I, the saturated fat, when they eat a lot of it, it seems to you know really spike their cholesterol through the roof. And there's a lot of debate as to whether that even matters. You know, does does sure. high cholesterol, does high LDL even matter? Um, so there's a lot of controversy over that, but even with what we're unsure of, the E4s do seem more hard endpoints, more heart attacks, more cardiovascular death. So not just elevated cholesterol, they actually have the hard endpoints. So to that effect, um, some of the experts in E4, they emphasize low carb, but 
a low carb, high fat, but the fat, they like it coming mostly from monounsaturated fat. So that would be mostly olive oil, avocado, like we said, nuts and seeds. You want to get lots of omega-3s from the fatty fish. Um, those people want to maybe go lower on dairy and maybe a little bit lower on red meat, even though red meat is still very high on monounsaturated fat. Um, mostly they just want to kind of avoid avoid dairy. So they would not be doing like this low carb diet where they're just loading up everything with butter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I would imagine most people who even know about the APOE4, uh, they've already done some research and they should have this rather dialed in, but I did get the question. So I, I thought I would at yeah. least mention it. And then another they one. Should, I mean, who, yeah, go ahead. If, if that person is listening, I think yeah. the forum is apoe4.info. It's people there are just brilliant, and and Excellent. they're sharing their own anecdotes, and 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 they're all e4s, and and they know far more than I do, and I'm not afraid to say that. Gotcha. Yeah, good. And then I had another question from my buddy Brett. Um, uh, he was he asked about if you knew anything happening with uh, Dale Bredesen over <gasps> at the Buck Institute. I love Dale Bredesen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, Dr. Bredesen is, uh, he, he's the one that's kind of spearheading this dietary and lifestyle multifactorial intervention for Alzheimer's. He's run a couple of very small studies, but really, really promising. People that are diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but also um, subjective cognitive impairment, people that kind of self-diagnose as having some kind of cognitive problem, he puts them on this multifaceted program. Um, I guess I think now they're calling it the Bredesen protocol, but it's not a ketogenic diet. It is a low glycemic diet, um, higher fat. He does encourage, I think, MCT oil, coconut oil. He also gets them like this huge array of tests. So he's also looking at vitamin D. He's looking at all their micronutrients, vitamin and mineral status. He's looking at thyroid, all the sex hormones, testosterone, estrogen. He's getting all that stuff in line. His program also involves stress reduction, um, a little bit of fasting, a 12-hour fast every day. So like 12 hours between dinner one night and breakfast the next morning. So it's this huge multi-pronged strategy, but the results are extremely promising. Like these were people who had to quit working. They were so far gone. And now these people are either back at work or they could be working if they wanted to. I mean, these people have had incredible turnarounds in their cognitive function. And um, Bredesen now is training people all over the country. He's training other doctors and dietitians and nutritionists in this program. Um, hmm. I think this is a game changer. Um, He's working with now, people with some cognitive decline, right? So, yes. So that you can yes. test some level of result. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I think they're working with people with full-blown Alzheimer's too, not just kind of this mild, okay. you know, mild early stage. I mean, um, the results are better, of course, in people whose disease state is more mild and who are, who are younger as well. But um, it's... It's so fascinating. And I, I should say, though, I mean, some people think he's a quack. I obviously think he's brilliant. I don't think he's a quack. But his intervention has so many things going on. How can we say what's effective, what's not effective? Because it reminds me, and I, I'm just trying to give the balanced view here. It sure, reminds sure. me of how people always pointed to, I think it was Dean Ornish's program, that Dean Ornish is a very, very low-fat proponent, right? Mm -hmm. He's like super low-fat. I don't know if he's vegan, but very, very low-fat diet. And he had trials where they like seriously improved people's cardiovascular health and, and other parameters. And he, everybody wants to put it down to the extremely low-fat diet versus all the other interventions they had, which is like maybe they stopped smoking, they started exercise, and they had meditation and social support. Right, so right. can we say for sure it's the diet? 
So same thing with Bredesen. Now, I wish Bredesen's protocol was a strict ketogenic diet because I think the ketogenic diet alone will go really, really far toward helping these people. All the other interventions are beneficial and they're bonuses, but to me, the diet is the place to start. Oh, so I'm like, okay. how much how much more effective might his protocol be if it was a ketogenic diet and all those other interventions? Now, he's Dr. Bredesen is coming out with a book in August, so I guess the whole world is going to learn about this soon. Okay, see where we're at then, huh? Yeah. And then there was another lady, um, I remember reading about years ago, Mary Newport. New, yeah, Dr. Mary Newport. Right. Yeah. Uh, what's going on with her? And um, she, quack she or is, legit? No, a hundred percent legit. Um, I've 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 <laughs> met her at some. I've met her at conferences. Now that doesn't make her legit, but uh, yeah, she. Right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you you probably know the story, but for the people listening, Dr. Newport um, is a physician. She was a neonatologist. She's like a baby specialist, but her husband contracted. Um, well, not contract. It's not a communicable disease. I mean, he developed cognitive impairment. You know, later diagnosed as full blown Alzheimer's. And being a neonatologist, she knew that there was something special about medium chain triglycerides because in some of these preemies and these newborns that are really struggling, they give them like an MCT uh, fortified formula to help their development M and help their brain function. Clarify what MCT so MCT stands for medium chain triglyceride, and it's a special type of fat that is more readily converted into these ketones we've been talking about. So unlike olive oil or sesame oil or butter, these, these special medium chain triglycerides tend to be made into ketones more easily. And um, mm -hmm. the biggest source of MCTs that we know of is, um, or that's readily available is coconut oil. Palm kernel oil also has some, and now now they sell these MCT oils that are that are available that are just MCT. Um, so she knew that there Every was some quack out there sells those. <laughs> I'm just you know what? I'm... Let's at the end of the show we'll list my affiliate link with the mold free and it's organic and it's harvested yeah, by yeah. unicorns and people yep. can totally buy that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but um, so Dr. Newport knew there was something special about these these MCTs. And then she started reading some research into Alzheimer's and she found a, a researcher that was using a medical food based on these MCTs. And he was having um, patients with Alzheimer's disease with noticeably improved cognition. So she took it upon herself to do nothing else but add coconut oil to her husband's oatmeal. And by doing only that, she noticed an improvement in his cognitive function. Now, over that was several years ago. Over the years, she kind of refined her protocol. She learned more about the specific MCTs. Um, she didn't really change his diet all that much. Um, he was still following his high-carb diet. So that tells you how powerful these ketones are and these MCTs are. Even when mm -hmm. someone is, yeah, even when somebody's not doing a ketogenic diet, they can still be helpful. But yeah, Dr. New, un unfortunately, her husband passed away, I think, in January 2016. So he, he's gone, but her research carries on. She's written a couple of books, just nobody knows about them. Um, mm -hmm. You can find them on Amazon, Mary Newport. Um, but she, you know, obviously her heart is in this for, for the long haul. And so yeah. she um, she continues her research and, and it's just, uh, it's... um. It's a really sad story, but but the work she's doing now and the the number of people she'll be helping is really great. And there's the that's the good part. Then that's great. The, that's and it also brings up um, an, an, a really important key thing, which is my opinion. But um, I don't even know how to start the story. But um, 
We happen to eat a very high fat diet in my family, me, my wife, my three kids, right? And we use animal fats and coconut oil exclusively. So when, say, my wife is talking to her parents and she tries to tell them to switch oils, I, because they only use mazola, corn oil, <laughs> you know, um, Like you said, maybe there is a, a good qualitative difference by adding the coconut oil into the diet. But I also told my wife, there is potential harm, perhaps, in adding an excessive amount of a healthy oil to a really crappy diet. Am I, am I on to something here? or I, I tend to agree with you. I think you're right. Um, and that's that. We'll come back specifically to Alzheimer's in a sec, but that's what kind of bothers me about now that low carb and keto are becoming so much more popular. And, and there's been so many articles, even in the mainstream press, like in, in you know New York Times and Wall Street Journal, about high fat diet and butter. It's okay to eat butter. It's okay to eat egg yolks. But nobody's emphasizing the even more important part of that equation, which is to decrease carbohydrate. You can't you can't just add butter to your pasta or add cream cheese to your bagel and think you're going to lose weight or get healthy. It doesn't work that way, you know. So I think yeah, buttered spaghetti noodles is not the key to health. Right. I mean, so it's it's all well and good that they're saying it's okay to eat fat now, but you cannot increase fat without decreasing your carbohydrate. That is a recipe for disaster. So in terms of, I think you're right, I don't recommend just adding fat or adding any good food to a bad diet. You ha It's more important to take away the bad stuff first than it is even to add the good stuff. That being said, for someone of, and, and this is pretty clearly laid out in my book, but for somebody who is, like we said, very old or, or even a younger person who's whose disease is very advanced, you are not going to get these people to change their diet. Um, they're not, you're, you're not going to get them to give up their orange juice and English muffin all of a sudden for eggs cooked in coconut oil. It's, it's not going to happen. In those cases, I actually do recommend giving them coconut oil or MCT oil. Because so then, it, then it's more like medicine where yes. you're prescribing something as a treatment. It, when it's an intervention and it needs to happen, I get it, but what I was talking about more like lifestyle. Yeah. Yes. No. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. For for someone who just wants the benefits of that, no, you can't just. Now you will generate ketones. I mean, if anyone listening knows Chris Masterjohn, he had a, a pretty interesting podcast where he was talking about adding MCT oil to a spaghetti and how it's more ketogenic than than doing a ketogenic diet, and that may be true if all we're looking for is measuring our body's level of ketones, but that's not what gets us the health benefits of eating this way. Um, it's, it's getting our body to produce ketones on its own. Um, and that's not, that's not going to happen by just, um, by just increasing your fat intake and not, not changing anything else. And I have a question then if, if ketones are present, will they be used as food or do they have another role? I mean, you know, will they be used as food? Fuel. I think I said food. Fuel by the body, <laughs> or can they just? Yeah, but 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 brain food. They're kind of food and fuel. Um, right, right. They will be used by the brain. I know that. I'm not sure about other tissues. I'm not sure, like if the muscles would take them up or some other cell. But the brain will use ketones even when glucose is high. 
which normally in a healthy normal body, you won't have high glucose and high ketones at the same time. But if for, you know, um, if for some reason, like an older person with dementia who took a lot of coconut oil or a lot of MCT oil, their brain will use those ketones. Interesting. Okay. Because I know that, you know, we, a lot of people, a, a common theme here is metabolic flexibility to be able to go in a keto state, low carb, normal Western, whatever, where you have metabolic flexibility. So I wasn't sure if, if, if the ketones themselves kind of escaped this dilemma of whether or not you are metabolically flexible. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, the brain will still actually use them, which is why it's so fascinating and why it's so important for people with any type of cognitive impairment, whether it's because of um, because of Alzheimer's or a traumatic brain injury or post-stroke, anything impairing brain function. I think this could be really helpful. Excellent. Let's tell everyone how to get the book, please. All right. My book is called The Alzheimer's Antidote. You can find it on Amazon. There is a Kindle version available. Um, oh, cool. I've had, Good. Yeah. I've had requests for the Audible version. Uh, they're probably making that. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure when that'll be out. Um, but you can find it at Amazon or it should be at brick and mortar stores. You should be able to get it at Barnes & Noble. Um, other than that, my website is tuitnutrition, T-U-I-T, nutrition.com. And um, it's mostly just a blog right now, but I, I want to make it more content heavy in the future. Right now, it's really just a blog. Um, I'm located in the Washington, D.C. area. If anyone listening is local and wants a consultation, I am, um, I'm in Northern Virginia. That's excellent, Amy. Thanks. And what is, what is the Tuit? What did that, where did that come from? Oh, um, everybody asks. There's there's an explanation on my website, but um, okay. I don't know if you've ever seen this thing. It's like when I was little, my mother had this wooden coin. Wait, are it you from like, the South? No. No? Okay. I was going to say, you're going to talk about a round to it, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you're the so. only person who knew. Oh, That's exactly where I I'm thought going. that was a Southern thing, but I guess the culture could creep up or around or go it anywhere, have, right? I'm, I'm a native New Yorker. Oh, okay. So tell the story. <laughs> okay. So um, when I was a kid, my mom had this wooden coin and it was kind of like a silver dollar size, kind of big. And on one side in big black letters, it said T-U-I-T, to it. And on the other side, it had small text and it said something about, you know, you're always waiting until you get around to it. You're all, you know, mm-hmm. I'll do that when I get around to it. Someday yeah. I'll get around to it. And um this little coin was now, now you have no more excuses because now you have a round to it. That's right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So now I'm to a nutrition. Like, when are you going to get serious about what you eat? You know, oh, someday I'll get to it. When are you going to get serious about your health? I'll get to it. Now you have to a nutrition. Uh, that is awesome. I was hoping that's what it was. Cool. I think everyone thinks it's like, is it into it, intuitive eating? I'm like, well, that, that would have made more sense. Yeah. No, that's nice too. But no, now you can get around to it and exactly. get, it, get it, get some progress. All right. Yes. Amy, thanks so much. This was fantastic. Thank you. And I, for, for the listeners, man, we had some serious technical difficulties, but we finally got it worked out. Yeah, we hung in there. <laughs> All right. I'm going to let you go. It's getting pretty late. So you have a great night and thank right. you. You too. Thanks. Take care. Bye. 